podcast was recorded on August 24th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman. Here is my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have an, a very special guest. We have an internal guest from Double Line, none other than Emilio Ciccone. Welcome to the show, Emilio. It's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, so Emilio, tell us a little bit about your role at Double Line. You're a portfolio manager of our actively managed equity value strategy. Obviously, very timely to get you on the podcast today for two reasons. One is where, where we sit in the, um, in, in the valuation cycle right now, and also talking about the cyclicality and the recovery here and how value is positioned versus growth. So maybe you can start off and tell us a little bit about the Double Line Active Equities team and an introduction about you and your background and why you're qualified to have this discussion today. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so just a little bit of background on me to start. I've been working in equity markets, long only, actively managed uh, products for the last 20 years. I cut my teeth at a firm uh, that does growth investing. Then I switched over and worked at a firm that does value investing. Uh, so it's no coincidence that the two strategies that we run are the value strategy and the core strategy, because those, re those reflect the styles that I've worked on for many years now. Um, in terms of the team at Double Line, we have a team of five uh, investment managers and a trader. Uh, the median uh, experience level is north of 15 years, a little bit under 20 years in terms of experience. So it's a very experienced team, diverse backgrounds, but everyone uh, has this discipline in value-based investing, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but essentially, you know, we're doing, in contrast to some of the other groups at Double Line that do more sort of top-down macro-level analysis, uh, we do the bottom-up work. So at the level of the firm or microeconomic analysis, looking at companies, industries, value chains, et cetera. So that's, that's where our work is focused on. Um, in addition, it's important to understand because people would ask, well, why the heck are you operating inside of, of Double Line? Because um, the group is doing you know, very different work. And I viewed it as very complimentary. Um, in any period of my investing career, um, you always have to ask the question, where are you in the cycle? You just did a little bit ago. And you know, people who are focused more on the macro signals generally have a better sense of that than people who are sort of uh, in the weeds on companies. So we think that our positioning within Double Line and the information that we gather from macro folks such as yourself um, actually enhances and gives us an edge in the work that we're doing. So we, we see ourselves sort of punching beyond our weight being inside the Double Line organization. Right. So uh, on, on that front, too. So you talked about being able to parlay this kind of top down macroeconomic uh, viewpoint and uh, you couple that with the microanalysis. So. How do you feel that you differentiate yourselves from other equity investors? It's been very challenging for active managers when we look at the SPIVA reports from S&P of active management. So what is your edge and how do you differentiate yourself from other equity investors? 
Yeah, it's a good question. On on the first aspect of our differentiation, it really is what what I talked about because I, I mentioned throughout my career, macro has been important, but I think we all can agree that as the Fed and uh, Fed policy as well as fiscal policy has increasingly become determinative of where valuations are, what sectors do well, what the general level of the stock market is, it's become even more important um, in the last five to 10 years. So, so certainly, again, you know, having those connections inside the firm help us enormously. Um, I'd also add that being able to look across the cap structure and compare relative cheapness or expensiveness of equities versus, say, high yield or other assets as you know, you know, we have a lot of cross-asset discussions and meetings outside of meetings. It's one thing for me to talk my book as an equity guy and always love equity, and there are a lot of equity firms that fall into that, I would say, trap. Um, we don't do that. You know, we're looking to see, do we actually, should we actually stick our neck out more and be more bullish because relative cheapness exists in equities versus another area? And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, I referenced earlier that I sort of had a weird career development where I worked in more of a growth shop and then in a value shop. You know, there's sort of religious fights or debates between more growthy investors and more value investors. And some people can really only hew to one style or the other. The fact that we're able to move a little bit and understand that it's okay to look for growth in a value play because it'll it'll actually make the story more valuable and more likely to work out over time. And similarly, not falling in love with stories where, you know, it's a growth name, but I'm paying this ridiculous price for it to have a value discipline. And um, within that or implicit in that is really thinking about the fundamentals of the company. There are a lot of people who are value investors and they're sort of mechanistic about, hey, I'm only gonna buy low value stuff and then they end up in value traps. Um, that's part of the di differentiation too, being able to see it from two styles and also going real deep into the fundamentals of the names. Well, I, I know a lot of our investors out there have always heard me say that too, that, you know, what's in a name, what's a label. We did a, we did a webcast on this earlier in the year. And, you know, when people are looking for value, why, why can't a traditional growth name or a growth sector actually screen cheap, right? So right. marrying those two processes together. So walk me through what we've just been through. Uh, obviously, we're 18 months into a pandemic. Uh, we saw the, the record fiscal and monetary support that both the Fed as, as well as our fiscal authorities gave us. Uh, we've just seen record earnings. There, there's a lot of headlines and narratives out there that we've had peak earnings. And I, I think yeah. when people say that they mean peak earnings growth, it's not right. that earnings are going to fall off a cliff. But what have you seen in this uh, reporting season? Um, how does it make you think about the outlook? And what did you learn through this point in the cycle of dealing with this unprecedented behavior? Yeah, I mean, this is a weird cycle. So there are things that are happening that we're still sort of struggling with. Just, just to give one example, you know, what you described over the last 18 months was obviously from sort of a prior peak. Trump called it, you know, the greatest economy the world's ever seen. And then we saw this massive decline and we never stopped the economy the way we did globally. So at least for a period of time, it was also the worst depression we'd ever seen. And then this massive and with unprecedented speed recovery, we saw sort of the cycling going on with, with the stocks where you think early cycle and then, and then mid cycle, but weird things happen. So a classic early cycle area like banks, all of a sudden when the curve started to steepen and there's a pretty good correlation between you know 10 year yield and how the banks perform, 
that worked, but it all didn't work as much as we would have expected because we didn't see the sort of loan growth that should have occurred. And the way I look at that is people were flushed with cash. Businesses were flushed with cash because of the unprecedented intervention of the government. So the trade-off was we also had balance sheets for the banks and a credit situation with the banks much earlier in the cycle than we should have had. So again, it's the ability to drop the reserves which would have been credit charges to the bottom line, which I would argue the market rightly overlooked. Um, but the real benefit was that curve steepening. But the loan growth that should have sustained back banks later, we haven't seen. So that's one anomalous thing going on because of the, you know, the uniqueness of the recovery um, that we've had. In terms of other things that we sort of learned through uh, the earnings um, results was it was, as you noted, records across board. I mean, it's almost 90% of companies beat on earnings and revenues and the beats were records. So you're talking about almost 90% earnings growth off of obviously the trough in terms of terrible compares last year. Same thing with revenues. So really, if you think about sort of the recovery coming out of it, it's good to stack years and think about where we are in terms of two years ago. And for a lot of industries, um, we're now above the compares from 2019, but with pretty decent growth expected for the second half of the year, 10 to 15% earnings growth, let's call it. And then next year, call it high single digits growth, which you know is actually pretty healthy growth. Um, there are concerns because what I'm referencing are um, the analyst expectations, which are subject to change as threats to this recovery occur. And we, we probably should talk about that because we have the episodic threats that we're again seeing since uh, the end of June with the Delta variant that have thrown sort of the monkey wrench into the works. But we have to recognize that those can, those can continue. Those could look worse in the winter than they are in the summer months. And I'm talking about, you know, largely COVID. And then we have to think about the longer term uh, drags that we already knew were occurring because from the global financial crisis through the pandemic, People talked about, you know, the growth challenged environment. Why? Because of demographics, because of debt. And those actually have gotten worse as a result of the pandemic and are still getting worse. So, you know, it's it's an area where we feel that we see over the, the rest of this year and into next year, what I think is assuming that we don't have, you know, Delta variant out of control or a worse variant. Um, we have reasonably good earnings expectations and earnings growth, but you should be valuation sensitive. But then thinking beyond that, uh, and you know, the market sometimes is very myopic with these things that can change, but generally is imputing you know, as much as 18 months, 24 months into the future. We do have to be mindful of what is coming next. Do we end up in another challenged growth period and how are we gonna respond to that? And you've had more of that former discussion, I'd, I'd say in the earnings um, than the latter, but obviously you know, we take a longer term view and, and have to think about both. Yeah, you, you mentioned a lot of things in there, Emilio, and uh, a lot to unpackage there, especially with some of the potential drivers of risk uh, for equity portfolios. But you know, going back to you know, some of the valuations that we touched on, you, you talked about the amounts of cash that various market participants are sitting on. I think you said that, that everyone is, is flush with cash. And that just makes you wonder, in this type of environment where we're undergoing, you know, record amounts of uh, QE and then fiscal stimulus uh, direct to consumer pockets. Do traditional valuation metrics even matter anymore? 
uh, in this type of scenario, given the idea that you can have this ongoing fiscal stimulus coming through? Right. Well, I mean, as you know, if there's not loan growth and you have this injection of liquidity, it tends to get stuck in the capital markets as, a, as opposed to going out into the real economy. That's been the conundrum of looking at um, you know, money growth versus looking at money velocity. And um, the banks themselves have, have not wanted to invest. And there's a whole bunch of you know, reasons for that that's probably an hour discussion in itself. But to answer your question directly, because it's stuck in the capital markets, obviously valuations are much higher. And you said, you know, should valuations not matter anymore? That sort of new era thinking we obviously don't agree with. We think that valuations always matter. And we're always afraid that over very long periods of time, the process tends to be mean reverting, but a long period of time could be multiple decades. And so it's a real challenge because as long as rates are low, one can justify higher multiples um, but at the same time, recognizing that part of that is a function of chasing yield and maybe being less prudent in taking up the risk. And certainly, we've heard the anecdotal stories about much greater participation of retail investors, many of whom don't even remember the last bear market because last year's episode was so quick that maybe you could argue it wasn't even a bear market. It was just another big dip to buy. And you kind of worry about the general level of risk aversion or lack thereof in the market. And so when other people are less concerned about that, we become more concerned about that. And that's one of the reasons why we've sort of defended having more of a value approach at this particular juncture within the cycle. So you, you mentioned some of those risks you there, and, and you briefly touched on it um, when, when you talked about COVID and potential flare-ups. And so what we're seeing now in the marketplace is we've, we've seen the Fed tried to signal that they're potentially going to taper soon, taper meaning that they're going to just buy less bonds. It's not that they're going to unwind their balance sheet. I've had a few conversations with clients recently that are saying, well, what happens when they stop buying? It's like, well, there's a long way before we get there. But now with some of the headlines we've seen, uh, we've also seen that potentially some of the more hawkish Fed members are starting to kind of walk that back a little bit. We obviously have Jay Powell up on Friday uh, doing a virtual uh, symposium now from Jackson Hole. So uh, do you think that really uh, that the Fed walks the taper back a little bit? And what is that signal for the equity market? We, we saw a very large rally in equities yesterday. Uh, we're here yes. reporting on a Tuesday dur during Monday's session. We, we had a new high in NASDAQ. The S&P was like sniffing right at, I think it was within the handle of, of record highs. How do you think about that, that risk coming in the marketplace? Is it one? Is it something you try to manage? And further to that, is it, or is it just that we're going to have these policies forever? And so we're back to TINA. There is no alternative is the acronym for the equity market. Yeah. So when I was referring earlier to, could we end up back in sort of that period between the global financial crisis and the pandemic? That's what I'm talking about. And I, I think that's probably still the likely scenario that we will end up there. Um, I Listen, I don't, I don't really have a strong view on at what point QE becomes unsustainable when the balance sheet of the Fed becomes unsustainable. Um, so for me, you have to be in this challenged environment where you don't want to fight the Fed and you assume that they can continue to do what they're doing longer while recognizing that it's, it's dangerous. And if it fails, everyone will feel it. 
we play a relative game. So we're trying to be a little bit more prudent than peers so that on a relative basis, we do a little bit better. But let's be honest, you know, the scenarios under which these policies come home to roost in a negative way, it's going to be bad for equities in a lot of other areas, obviously, because you're talking about a very aggressive reset in, in valuations, I would think. Um, so, you know, that's, that's always a challenge. But, you know, valuation in the short term really isn't the driver. So it's hard to predict that. Um, what we try and do is, is what I just said, try and be more valuation sensitive, try and look for growth at a more reasonable price, try and look at value names that aren't value traps, so that on average, if there's multiple compression that comes, that we're, we're able to deal with it better because the multiples, uh, the average multiple in the portfolios is lower. And also the quality, quality of earnings, the ability to, to generate earnings to justify um, that higher multiple when multiples are compressing can offset it. And so that's sort of the strategy that we're trying to pursue. Um, but, you know, these are, you know, they're, they're challenging times. As for, you know, the commentary out of the Fed, frankly, it's, it's frustrating because, as you noted, the more hawkish members, they made comments suggesting that perhaps they were moving up the taper decision and the market sold off on that. And then they walked it back and then the market moved up. And those types of puts and takes are things that we're obviously, they're not in our investment thesis, but if it creates a particular opportunity in a particular stock where we're a buyer at levels anyway, then, you know, we welcome the temporary decline. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's sort of above my pay grade to understand or predict what the ultimate timing is going to be. I just feel like if I have a bigger seatbelt relative to other people, knowing that auto accidents are always bad, that's probably the best we can do. Yeah, it's funny you use auto. You're not using automatic pilot like uh, Jay did about three years ago. But you know, right. as as you as you as you identified there, it is very challenging to see that. And you know, I, I like to tell investors that instead of trying to dissect the conflicting commentary amongst all the Fed governors, just listen to the one at the helm. And yes, right. the one at the helm could be replaced next year, but it's the one at the helm that's really dictating things. And so. The others are there to provide commentary and some of the discussion points. But let's talk about the key thing that was on investors' minds. It seems to be really nowhere in sight all of a sudden on the discussion topics, and that is inflation. So we saw record interest in Google searches. If you use like Google Trend Analytics, uh, that we had a record number of searches for inflation a few months back, and that's completely dissipated uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, twofold. One is, you know, from also the decline in treasury yields. Uh, I still think some of that is because of the treasury withdrawing, you know, from their general account and, and some of those kind of wonky nuances there. But as you think about inflation, what are you thinking about it to your equity portfolio? Is it a risk? Does it, you know, do you have pricing power in there? So you feel comfortable with that? And there's been a lot of people using this phrase of stagflation. Um, how do you think about stagflation? I always think about it as a low growth coupled with significant inflation. Uh, I'm not sure that a 4% inflation rate qualifies, but again, how, how do you think about both of those, um, both of those risks from inflation and, and potentially stagflation? Okay, let's start with the, the first one. Um, the way we think about inflation's impact on equities is we like the good kind and we don't like the bad kind. And the good kind typically is, hey, I have this... I have this reflationary, and I know that was tautological, but hear me out for a second. Um, <laughs> we have this good kind, which is, you know, within 
you know, a couple, three basis points of what we've seen historically in a normal, normal reflationary cycle, what typically happens. What counterintuitively happens is that a lot of cyclical companies get pricing because through the downturn, they couldn't turn to their customers and ask for pricing. And now everyone sees, hey, prices are going up because we're in a recovery. And so they can start to ask for it. When they ask for it, if they're a better quality company, they ask for a little more than they need and they can drop that into their bottom line. So there are periods of time where you actually see some healthy margin expansion occurring in addition to what you just see from normal operating leverage in the business. And so that's the good kind of inflation that's correlated with you know, value and cyclical names tending to outperform early and early mid-cycle outperforming, et cetera. The bad kind is when you start to not be able to pass on those costs um, the bad kind is when, you know, employees are starting to strike because they start to figure out that their wages aren't keeping up, et cetera. And we've seen moments in time like that. And that's outside of, you know, the experience with um, hyperinflation and the stagflation you saw in the 70s in the United States or even cases around the world. And so you obviously want to avoid that. Now, you asked specifically about stagflation. And in the, in the case of stagflation, the way I think about it is what you just suggested, but also recognizing that markets are pretty darn good. And so the best solution to high prices is high prices, meaning, oh, there are high prices. Let's go produce more supply. We can make money off of that. You remember when corn suddenly got really expensive and people were growing it on the side of interstate highways. That sort of activity can help bring these things back, back in. So how do you have periods where you have really out of control inflation and that activity isn't happening or that activity is not working. And so for me, I think about it as what you just described as sort of the symptoms, but the cause has to be some sort of exogenous shock that's serious enough that it, the markets aren't operating effectively to fix it per the rule, you know, high prices are the solution to high prices. And in the 70s, that happened because we had a high level of industrialization in this country, which we obviously don't have now. We've outsourced a lot of big manufacturing abroad. We've also automated. Many more people are involved in the surface sector than were around back then. So if you look at energy usage per GDP, even excluding just efficiency gains in activities that stayed here, it's much reduced. Um, moreover, we had, uh, and I believe still continue to have, you know, high quality energy production here. And that sort of wasn't the case in the 70s. So now you think about an exogenous shock from the sources where we're importing that energy. It's not something that gets fixed overnight. Okay, so why is that relevant today? I've been sort of noodling over this idea that maybe part of the problem today is that if you have a lot of government intervention in the economy, if you have higher levels of regulation, you have higher levels of Fed involvement, fiscal involvement, and dependency of businesses on that, you could end up in a similar situation. I don't think they're perfectly analogous, but I guess what I'm looking for is high inflation and slow growth where there's some sort of exogenous shock that takes a long time or the markets can't function well to address that can lead to that persistence going on. And so we have to look carefully at things like, you know, the, these new big pieces of legislation in Congress and ask ourselves, are some of these things going to inhibit the ability of the market to be efficient? Might we end up with um, a labor system that looks more like France and Germany? In another life, I actually lived and worked in Germany for a while, and it was just astounding not only how much vacation time they got versus Americans, 
but also the inability to fire people. And when you did fire them, how many, how much more money you had to pay them? And we hear stories about, you know, guys who are really talented at tech in Germany coming to the United States, coming to Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, California has more labor protections than Europe, but they're still coming here. So that lets you know how, you know, more ossified the labor system is there. So when you start to see that kind of regulatory creep, that over time could lead to something, maybe not like 70s hyperinflation, but a baseline level inflation that's that's higher. And so um, we need to pay attention to that because I'm starting to see some elements of that. But in terms of how, and this is just the last comment, in terms of how we address inflation risk of the bad kind in our portfolio, we're really trying to find companies that are of higher quality, but we pay reasonable prices for, who have an ability um, to pass on those costs. You know, there are a lot, there's chip shortages right now. And the, the companies in um, certain areas uh, where there aren't that many suppliers of the chips, they've been able to raise their price and require that their customers order for 12 months. They have to place those orders upfront contractually for 12 months. That's tremendous pricing power, right? So they're maintaining their margins, even though they're discrete that they need to bring into their manufacturing process that are also in short supply. Those types of companies help insulate you somewhat from the inflationary pressures we're seeing. Yeah, so let's wrap it all together in terms of thinking about how investors should be considering their own portfolios, considering their own allocations. And just specifically, let's just stick to U.S. equities and in, in, you know, in, in value. And then let's just contrast it to growth where, you know, as we've talked about in the past, it's been the tug of war for the most part, especially on the. Uh, when you're looking at it on a year-to-date basis, value really left growth in the dust, you know, in the first, let's say, five months. But since then, growth has been, you know, getting traction there. And to, to date, I think they're neck and neck, whereas some, yeah. you know, through the, maybe the first or second quarter of the year, there had been as big of a gap between the two, of, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 percentage points. So how should investors be thinking about that for the current macro environment that we're in today? Yeah, it's a good question. So in terms of valuation, because uh, growth caught up in the last couple of months with the growth scare that I think is largely driven by Delta forcing, you know, re-lockdowns or plans to be delayed. Um, and then, you know, other sort of factors related to COVID creating problems as well. Um, the, the, uh, the valuation difference between growth and value isn't quite back at sort of a peak value spread, meaning the, the premium of growth to value, but, but it's, it's much closer to that um, than I would have expected to happen. So if you're looking at valuations, I think there's a lot more uh, cheaper earnings to be had in good quality companies on, on the value side. Um, but the other thing to be mindful of is we're also farther along in the cycle. So think back when I was talking about the banks and the weird cycle, like the, con the conviction level that you can have on the banks, given that we might be mid to late cycle. And if we are, what does that mean for the likelihood that you're going to see that acceleration in loan growth to re-rate those banks? It may be more limited from here. So while we favor value, um, we don't favor value as much at this point in the cycle, given the fact that most the biggest portion of the value names is financials. Um, and so we, we still overweight them, but not nearly as much. Now, there are sort of mid-cycle value names as well as in industrials and other areas. And so we own those, we look at those. Um, so you, you still can find 
value, but if you understand what the components of that value bucket are, you have to understand that some work better early cycle, some work better mid cycle, late cycle, and you have to be aware of that adjustment. And we are sort of feeling because this is not peak earnings and then it's going off a cliff, but certainly you, you are not going to see many sequential quarters of not nearly 90% earnings growth, but you have to understand where you're on the cycle and adjust for that. So the short answer is we look at both sets of opportunities under both factors or styles, um, but, the, but the weighting is shifting from one where it was a no-brainer to very heavily overweight value, and now we're sort of merely overweighting and preferring uh, value over growth because of that valuation difference, being sensitive where we play because we want to uh, account for the fact that we're in a different part of the cycle. Yeah, I think that's very important too, what differentiates your approach here, right? Because even though you look at it from a value lens, you're, you're looking at the overall picture too and trying to rotate to that cycle. And yeah. I, I've, I've read a lot more about some strategists thinking that we're getting late into the cycle, which, you know, when you think about it, you know, from a, a cycle that what the NBER say, we were out of recession in April of last year, right? So it, yeah. it would be a very short cycle if that was indeed the case. But let's talk about, you know, you talked about the philosophy and everything, but given the, you know, your, your rotation here being not as overweight value, how are you positioned today? So what what is your kind of higher conviction? Let's start at like the sector level and things like that. And, you know, what do you have the biggest conviction on? What are you kind of nonplussed about today? Walk me through some of those reward and risk opportunities, how you're thinking about the portfolios. Yeah, so we still have an overweight in, in the banks, but it's moved down in terms of its overweight. We also, recognizing that there are some risks here and unknown risks where the economy seems to, I mean, just on a few cases, China closed its third largest port, and you see what that does to, to, to global economic activity. So recognizing that risk, we brought back um, the weights into some areas that we were, we were holding overweights prior to the pandemic. And so that's uh, in consumer services, for example, um, but also recognizing that some areas where we're reopening, the Delta variant is going to go away. We think that you know the recovery will continue. We're, we don't think earnings is going over a cliff. Um, we have exposures in consumer discretionary areas. And in that, there's sort of a balance between names where people are going to go shopping no matter what, and then the names where you know they're likely to go shopping in soft retail, for example, where they're going to go shopping um, because they're still flush with cash, because it's back to school, because we don't think that the recovery, while there are fits, fits and starts and it's an, an, a bumpy road, it, the road isn't um, blocked, we think those names will work as well. So, you know, in terms of where we're overweighting, those are the areas. Um, you know, we, we don't have large uh, weights. Uh, we have underweights and things like utilities um, and uh, in staples. Uh, because those are areas that um, we think are appropriate sort of late, late cycle, and we're not in those areas right now because, you know, we, we just think that the recovery um, is not, and, and the earnings performance is going to be lower than, than what we just saw in 2Q, but, you know, it's not doomed. So we, we would expect that uh, the recovery will continue in fits and starts. Okay, well, I, li I like to know that the economy is not doomed. That's, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> basis start with. Um, so I'm, I'm going to jump into the compliance hotbed here. Tell me what kind of names you like, you know, t tell me what are your favorite kind of positioning today? I know our compliance folks cringe on this type of stuff, but like you're an active equity guy. This is what you get paid to do. These are where your bets are. Walk me through a couple of the theses in your portfolio, the things you're most like 
actively overweight, right? So your largest positions relative to like a benchmark or something like that. Yeah, sure. So uh, let's talk about financials again, um, just to understand within that sector, uh, our exposures lean towards uh, the bank still. Um, but within it, what we really like are names where there's also sort of a self-help story. So uh, depending on which strategy we're, uh, we're talking about, our, our largest holding is uh, in Citibank and in Wells Fargo. And the reason why we like those is because you have names that um, are actually trading uh, relatively cheaply. In the case of, of Citibank, it actually trades below tangible book, which typically you don't see with banks. And um, the issue there is that this is a bank um, that has been underperforming in terms of its returns on equity. And we think that those are going to improve over time. They have a new CEO involved. They are still restructuring certain assets, but they do have high quality assets, whether it's the overseas credit card business or the cash man management services, et cetera. So it's a company where we would expect those returns to continue. Moreover, they have excess uh, statutory capital that um, they're not putting to work in loans, but they are gonna be able to buy back shares and it's a no-brainer when your stock is trading below tangible book that you know you should be buying back your shares. It's one of the highest returning investment projects that you have. So that's an example of a name we like. Similarly, isn't, isn't that the old Buffett metric? Isn't that like Warren Buffett's metric? I know, I know you you kind of yeah. like to reference him. I, I think there's a lot of people that too many people reference him, but isn't that one of his favorite kind of metrics to think about when one should do the buyback versus at all-time highs in your stock price, right? That's exactly right. And that's why it was a little bit puzzling because you'll remember last year, uh, some people went on CNBC and they were questioning the, proprietary, uh, the propriety of uh, buying back shares at any time, uh, which obviously is overstating it. There are times where it makes sense to do it and this is one of them. Um, another, the, other, the other bank that we like though, you know, in, in um, our other strategy is uh, Wells Fargo. You might recall in um, 2016 or 17, uh, they got caught because they were opening accounts without permission of customers in order to um, make sales targets and earn bonuses in the company. And that was obviously a complete disaster. CEO gone, all the management around that gone, and they've cleaned it up. But prior to that, for many decades, Wells Fargo had been one of the highest returning, most efficient banks out there. And so we um, own it because we expect that these problems are going to get fixed, that returns will continue to improve, um, and valuation, which is only a little bit above uh, tangible book, will also improve when that happens. In fact, the, the biggest drag on returns now isn't that the bank isn't operating well. It's the fact that um, as a consequence of those misdeeds, they've been limited in the amount of capital that they're allowed to grow, meaning they've been capped at 2017, right? So once that's lifted, and we would expect that that should be lifted soon, although the company obviously won't second guess the government on that. So we have no edge in it, but we know it's going to happen. And when it does, it's the same situation with Citi where they'll be able to repurchase shares. And we're not talking small amounts. For Citi, it's something like 8% of shares outstanding. And for Wells, uh, it might be 10. So. You know, these are these are large amounts of shares that make sense uh, for them to buy. So yep. we from a, from a like macro standpoint, yeah, from a macro standpoint, I've seen a lot of people writing about this or at least the people that, that uh, work in the kind of wonky Fed area of, of macro research and saying that, you know, when the Fed tapers, the natural buyer would be Wells Fargo for yes. that reason. Right. That they have more more capital put to work. So uh, I, I did mean to cut you off. I hate when people say I didn't mean to cut you off because I definitely did cut you off there. But what, what do you like outside of financials? 
So for con services, um, the name that we really like uh, is actually uh, Alphabet. Um, Alphabet is, uh, I think Jeff Bezos referred to Google as the mountain that cannot be moved. And I know there are a lot of people that have been concerned about Alphabet because there's you know, all this concerned about increased regulation, et cetera, and those are risks. Um, we've looked at the specifics of um, the, the regulation, and we think there are other large cap tech names that are probably more vulnerable. But we also think that even if the regulations that have been proposed were to be implemented, uh, the, the company's profitability um, may not be at all impacted by it because they would have to apply these rules across competitors as well. And there's very little chance that the 92 or 93 percent market share that they have in search is going to be dented at all. I mean, there are sort of winner take all aspects to what they're doing. The most radical thing would be to turn it into a regulated utility. And we don't see even the most radical ideas uh, percolating um, in DC suggesting that. So we look at the company and say they're gushing a ton of cash. They have very high returns. They also interestingly still have uh, call options on other businesses. They own YouTube. Um, YouTube is the most watched television out there. If you talk to young Zoomers, they don't watch uh, Nickelodeon channel anymore. That's what you know, young people in my, in my age group did. In fact, that asset after, ironically, after, right after it was sold, started to decline on that realization. Uh, instead, YouTube, which you know, is continuing to grow and the monetization efforts are really sort of in early stages, I think is gonna be much bigger. So we like the call optionality there. Self-driving cars is another area. And then in AI, they're very strong as well. So we look at this business and we say, you know, for high 20s, but it's growing at high teens to 20%, that's not an unreasonable multiple to play. And it's very high quality earnings and the bearish entry are some of the strongest out there. And we think these call options mean um, that this business actually still has uh, appreciation left to go in the stock. So that's why we like that one. And then similarly in um, technology, which, you know, we sort of classify most of what we own in comm services. We own, we own some names that aren't technically tech companies, but as you know, a lot of that basket is. But just speaking about uh, the tech names then directly, one of the other names we like in the growthier um, strategy, the core strategy is, is PayPal. We really like um, the fintech story around that name. It's it's pretty much a, a duopoly right now with them and Square in terms of trying to figure out how to create omni-channel payment opportunities, which means that you can you know, pay for things online, but you can also pay for things in store um, because they made an acquisition of a European company and they're very strong in that area. So you've got a company that has really large scale now growing at 25%. And during their analyst day earlier this year, they said that things are accelerating for them. Um, so this is a company where you can start to pay, you know, something like a 30 multiple. It's one of the more expensive names we own, but it's also an incredibly high quality name where it's incredibly difficult to displace them. Um, and so that's why um, that's why we like that name. And incidentally, um, the, the name traded off a little, little bit because one of the headwinds that they have is this, of course, was a business that came out of eBay. And people are really smart, understood that PayPal was much more valuable than eBay. But eBay set a policy where they wanted to not have one payment option on the site. So they opened it up. And so the eBay business has been in runoff mode. Um, and it used to be, you know, obviously the vast majority of uh, where their transactions were coming from. And they'll exit this year with those transactions being maybe two to three percent. And that's a surprise because people thought the number would be higher and the runoff would occur next year. 
but that's really accelerated. And so a really weird thing happened in the quarter, they missed numbers and the stock went down. But once you got into the details and you realize it went down because the runoff business that was going to run off anyway is coming off. And as soon as that's done, then the normalized growth will reappear and the market, uh, the market participants that maybe don't scrutinize the fundamentals as closely are almost assuredly going to re-rate the stock by, you know, a couple of turns again. So um, it's an example where understanding what's under the covers and what's really going on can help help give you an edge as well. All right. Well, thank you for that. That's a great rundown too. So, uh, Emilio, before we let you go, where where can people access the information on on you and what you guys are putting out there for the world? Well, what's a good channel for them to uh, to to get into the brain of Emilio Chacone? Yeah, we we have on the Double Line website um, a section under strategies um, where the active equities team uh, posts our thought pieces, where we have videos, and um, where we have sort of market commentaries that appear at least on a quarterly basis. So I would recommend that people come to the Double Line website in order to learn more about our group. All right. Well, thanks for that, Emilio. So we've had Emilio Chicone. He is the portfolio manager of our equity value strategy. Um, you know, he's well-versed, as you can see, bottom-up analysis. Him and the team do great work there. So we encourage everyone to check it out. However, Medio, you still have to go through the gauntlet. Even being an equity guy, you've got to go into Sam's favorite part of the show. So before we let you go, Sam, take it away. All right, Medio. My favorite part of the show is Sherman Says. I'm going to offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff, starting with Jeff first to elicit a top-of-mind response. So Jeff gets stagflation. Overhyped. Wealth gap. Not overhyped. <laughs> Jackson Hole. Snooze fest. <laughs> FDA vaccine approval. Already happened for Pfizer would expect it to happen for Moderna as well as for boosters. Yeah, I would. I was going to think Lau would always say, did it. You know, that's what he likes to yeah, say. Did it. Yeah, did <laughs> it. Yeah. Automation. Back to Jeff with that one. Continuing. Productivity. Always trying to enhance that. Overnight reverse repo facility. Uh, open for business and heavily utilized. Right. Business travel. Going to come back eventually when people realize how safe it is. Trey Lance. Future. Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, would love them to tank, but they won't. Needing a new quarterback. All right. That wraps it up for Sherman Says. That may be a new record there, Sam, in terms of Sherman Says. I think you were just on point. You must have something to do today. I guess we have another call coming up. So, uh, Emilio, it was a pleasure as always. Thanks for uh, taking the time to visit with us today. Hopefully our listeners really uh, gleaned some insight there of how you think about not only uh, how to be cautious in this equity market today, but also find value. So thanks again for your time. We appreciate it. Um, Also, uh, you can catch all of our podcasts out there on iTunes, SoundCloud, the Google. Uh, We we tweet stuff out. Don't forget to check out Sam's other podcast, which is becoming very popular, the Double Line Monday Morning Minutes. 
uh, that drops before the opening bell every Monday. And you can also follow us on YouTube, youtube.com backslash double line capital. I feel like I'm, I'm an advertiser now just trying to uh, sell all the products out there. But this is month 18 of the pandemic. We're doing our best to keep you guys updated. So, Emilio, thanks again for your time today. Everyone take care and we'll talk to you soon, two weeks from today. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by the listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person or a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Securities mentioned are not a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell. These securities were chosen based on their active overweights within the representative portfolio to explain portfolio positioning and the forward-looking view of the market that drives such positioning. For the preceding year, beginning August 24th, 2021, a list of all positions is available by request at media at doubleline.com. Equities may decline in value due to both real and perceived general market economic and industry conditions.